The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and will save those whose spirits are crushed. In the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to focus on our psalm this morning and and then peek over at our gospel reading, John 6. So you actually have the psalm in uh, your worship bulletin, and particularly that verse that I just quoted, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and will save those who are crushed in spirit. Let me tell you a brief story that I think captures the hope of that psalm, and it comes from an incredible moment at the beginning of Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Capital of the World. A father goes to Madrid searching for his son, Paco, who is estranged because of what he did to the family, but also uh, had been suffering. And so it was, it was his estrangement and his situation in life that just caused him to kind of just give up and, and run away from the family. And the father went looking for him and, and turned up empty in his search for his son. And in an act of desperation, he only has a, a few days left, he places an ad in the city paper that simply says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, 12 noon Tuesday. All is well, all is forgiven. Papa. And so the father shows up, kind of resignation that he probably won't find his son. And when he arrives, he can't believe his eyes. A crowd of 800 young men were awaiting his arrival. And it's the picture of the simple hope of reconciliation and restoration that Papa offered that apparently was in the hearts of 800 young men just yearning to hear those words. And that, that desire, that desperation, and that need and want for those words, I think, also captures uh, the, the psalm that we might have, that we might want to hear God say the same thing, all is well and all is forgiven when we are crushed and brokenhearted. And this is because life is filled with suffering. And there's, there's numerous ways that we suffer, but there's really two categories that I work with, and, uh, and the ways end up playing themselves out from those two basic categories. We are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit because of the things we've done, sins, behaviors, and the things done to us the sins we've done and the ways we've been sinned against, or not even just sinned against, just the effects of suffering because of the fall. And I couldn't shake the psalm. Uh, This is the second sermon I wrote this week because the John 6 sermon, I really like John 6. It's one of my favorite passages, but I kept on turning back to the psalm and thought, nope, that was just the intro. We got to turn to the psalm. I couldn't shake it because God's been gracious, and I'm not in the thick of it, but a lot of people around me are. And this is describing everywhere I look, I'm seeing this sense of crushed and brokenhearted. A few months ago, my father's sister died tragically after a debilitating depression. She has died, and my father, I've never seen him this grief-stricken. This is the worst thing so far that has happened to him. 
out of the blue, walking through the halls in the diocesan office, a colleague just came up and said, I just heard horrible news about a couple whose six-day-old baby had just died. What do we do? A friend who feels in bondage to an addiction that has caused long-lasting destruction in her life. The sin of someone else, a friend who has destroyed two marriages. Or, uh, as of last night, but we didn't need the report from last night of the reports of child abuse, but just the stories over the past few years of the Me Too and Church Too, those can grab your attention. So when you hear the words brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, you might not have one of those. That, those are very intense moments. You might have your own very intense one. But again, we, we're, it's not, we're not uh, sizing up suffering like that's the varsity version of suffering, and you might just have a JV version. Suffering and brokenheartedness comes up in many ways. So how, when you hear those words, how do you fill those words up with what you've experienced? And maybe if it's not you, it's probably someone very close to you. Is it the anxiety? Conflict, relational conflict, despair, shame at what's been done to you, guilt for what you've done, anger, vengeance, just a blanket of grief, job-related, health-related. I mean, you can fill in those words. And in the middle of those things, that's where we need to hear the promise from our psalm. The righteous cry The Lord hears, and He delivers from all of their trouble. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and will save those who are crushed in spirit. But the problem is that when we are crushed, the last thing many people feel is that God's actually near. feels the opposite. Brokenhearted and crushed doesn't feel like God's close. It feels like it's happening because He's so far away, because He's distant, because He likely turned His back on you, because He's either annoyed or angry or disgusted, or because you're damaged goods, you feel like damaged goods, and He doesn't want to be near that, or maybe you deserve it in some way. I mean, I like talking about the grace of God, but my heart defaults to karma very quickly. If something bad happens, I can make a list of what God's probably getting me back for. So it's the, it is the default mode, I think, of many of us to assume that suffering is at the hand of God for a purpose to get us back or punish us. But the Lord, the psalm tells us, undergirds the brokenhearted and crushed. He draws near to their cries. The psalm, in many of the psalms, by the way, most of the psalms are not just happy, joyful ones, but have lament and grief built into them. But this psalm reveals the compassionate disposition of God toward those who suffer. Apparently, suffering doesn't repel God. Instead, it actually draws God near. And God promises never to cut Himself off from those who cry in distress. And our, our, our Lord's closeness to us and identification with the broken is most realized in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Jesus Christ entered into our suffering and pain to do a few things, but to show solidarity with us. And so when we look at the cross, a lot of things are happening in the cross, but one thing is solidarity and suffering, but also to rescue us. And that's what the resurrection is. There is hope after that solidarity. So in his pain and suffering, he's showing solidarity and rescuing at the same time. But then we have John 6. It's not only in the incarnation and in his ministry, but John 6 is giving us Jesus' promise. It starts out because you can't get any more near than in you. It's not just that God's disposition is toward you and God draws near, but He's drawn near particularly in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus. But then Jesus says, in you, you know, take me in, take, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then right after that, it says, I will abide in you and you will abide in me. And it's for that reason that many people read that and think of the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, and communion. God isn't far. He has come near, and even near in His promised presence in His Word and in communion. So, what I want to do is turn our attention toward some of the, the wonderful hints of our, our Lord's promise that we see that are actually in our Eucharistic prayers. Um, so, I know this isn't a class on Eucharistic theology, but there's so many good points of hope that we actually pray on a regular basis. And I want to look at those because I think it captures uh, this Psalm 34 promise. There's a beautiful invitation in all six of our Eucharistic prayers. This is uh, it's in rite one, there's two there, and all four of our rite two prayers. There is something that is really specific, and it comes from Matthew's account. So, what ends up happening is every time the priest prays regarding the cup, the priest will say, uh, quoting Jesus, this is the blood of the covenant shed for you and many for the remission of sins. Drink this, all of you. It's those three words, all of you, that are actually found only in Matthew. Mark and Luke and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians all report Jesus saying, this is the blood of the covenant, drink it. That's good enough. But Matthew wants to go one step further and says, drink this, all of you. Now, if you were here last week, you heard from Canon Josh Bales about the song, All of Me Loves All of You. Well, that was a picture of Jesus, the Father God, saying, all of me loves all of you as an individual, like you. The picture here is all of you, the collective, and so we have those things put together. The beauty of Matthew is that Matthew is a tax collector. If there was someone who didn't feel like he belonged, it was the tax collector who was disliked by everybody. But in, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, right before Jesus does the Last Supper, there's a reference to Judas. It was also in our passage. Judas was referred to in our, our gospel passage. And right after it is a reference to Peter. Well, Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. Peter's the one who denies Jesus. And all of the other disciples bailed on Jesus at the, at the pinnacle of his need. So, for Matthew to include, it's built into the story, drink this, all of you. Yes, you Judas. 
Yes, you, Peter. And yes, all of you who will desert me. The picture of it is the, is the wideness of God's mercy. And this is important for us because we need to see the Lord's nearness for all of you, especially those who don't feel worthy. And again, when you're brokenhearted and crushed, that's when you're feeling your most needy and unworthy. And what I want us to focus on in here is the gracious, merciful invitation of, this is exactly when you need it, all of you. Anglican priest J.C. Ryle captures it like this. It's hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of our Lord's disciples, but it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of His disciples. Our Lord has many weak children in His family, many dull pupils in His school, many raw soldiers in His army, many lame sheep in His flock, yet He bears with them all and will cast none away. The promise of the Lord's nearness is a promise to all of us. Another story that I think can capture some of this hope and promise is from a woman named Martha Furman. And Martha has suffered many difficulties in her own life. And her ministry is an an illustration of our psalm. She chose to counsel children, to be a counselor for children who experienced some of the worst that life can give them from abuse, their parents' death. And she has this camp every summer and is called the Camp Braveheart in which she ministers and her team ministers to these children. And she describes a key moment in this camp. And what happens is the children will all be given a flower pot, and they are asked to actually think about, not deny, but think about the very thing of, that has caused them suffering and grief, parents' death, abuse, whatever it is. And at that point, they drop or throw down and shatter the flower pot. And then as a group, they all get together and pick up the pieces. And they write, she asks them to write promises from God, Bible verses that are meaningful, or a pleasant memory of God's faithfulness in the past on some of those pieces that are big enough to actually write on. And then they get together and they all put the pieces back together. And she writes this, the pot will not go back together in its original state. There are cracks and also holes in the pot. It doesn't even look like a pot anymore. But at the end of the week, each child is given a candle to put in the middle of their pot, and the shining light, I tell them, represents the light of Christ that shines through our brokenness. I think that's the Lord's nearness in our brokenheartedness, which drives us to our prayer this morning. Eucharistic prayer C has many beautiful words, but in particular these, because it says that we come to the table for solace. If you're brokenhearted, you need solace, but also strength. When the flood of grief or shame overcomes you, God comes near to you to bring you solidarity and solace, but also to sustain you, to empower you to persevere. This is something that no clergy person, no fellow Christian can make happen. This is basically us just saying, this is what God's promised, and He's faithful to His promise. 
He's here, he's near, and you're invited and come for solace and for strength. We come to this table for pardon and also renewal. Of course he forgives you. We will hear a declaration of that in just a few minutes. But he also renews you so that you might be free from the hooks and bondage of the sin that ensnares you. The light of Christ shines through our brokenness. God has promised that he will wipe away all tears, and we look forward to the day that grief will be banished. But here and now, no magic words or pious platitudes will make the pain go away. But in the middle of your suffering, you're not alone. Somehow, God is present in the darkness and in the pain, and this does not remove the fear, it doesn't remove the anxiety, and it doesn't remove the struggle, but it does remind us that when we reach out in the darkness, God is already there, and God is faithful to his promises. Amen.